Purpose podcast. So today's topic is one that I think is maybe a little bit more of a newcomer to the modern homesteading scene. It's definitely not a newcomer to the old-fashioned homesteading scene of our ancestors. But it's one that, as you know, personally as a modern homesteader, it didn't come into my awareness until much later into my homesteading journey. But what I love is that I'm seeing more and more people talk about this in homesteading circles online. And I think that is so important. Um, and that topic is the idea of building community and investing in our local towns um, and cities. And how can we do more? Like maybe we have our farm, maybe we have our own sustainability, but how can we really start serving those around us? And I'm seeing more chatter about this. And so I wanted to go straight to the source today. I found the most amazing organization called Strong Towns. And I am so pleased to have with me today, Norm Van Eden-Petersman, who is a member advocate with Strong Towns. So welcome, Norm. Thank you so much, Jill. It's great to be on the podcast. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. So I think just to, to give everybody a little background, could you kind of tell us how you are, how you came into this world and then a little bit about what Strong Towns does? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up on a dairy farm in Southern Alberta, and it was in that context that I always experienced what I perceived to be sort of a vision of what the city life looked like, which was kids just running around in neighborhoods, having a grand time while I was somewhat isolated on the farm having to work way harder than anybody else my age, and just being responsible for more things at a younger age. And so there were all of the benefits of that, but also some of the drawbacks from a social perspective. Over time, as I went off to university and then uh, served as a Christian pastor for 10 years, during that time, what I realized is that the communities that people that I knew were living in were actually not themselves very well optimized for people getting together. The, the idea of spontaneous uh, games of pickup hockey or things like that I just didn't seem to actually happen with the frequency that I would have thought would be the case if you lived close to so many people. We tried to get together with our neighbors, but they were older. Or they didn't have connections uh, with us at the same age. And so we didn't do as much with them. But my dad did uh, as a farmer working with other farmers. Uh, there was I, I loved a piece of advice that somebody had said, whenever you move into a new place, one of the first things you should do is go and ask your neighbor to borrow a tool. Does, don't make it a big tool. Don't make it an expensive one, mm -hmm. but just ask them for something because that way you open up that invitation, uh, which says, if you need something, you can come and ask me because you've already broken the ice. And thinking about that from the perspective of how do we create connections with each other uh, really was on my mind a lot. And when I was pastoring, I was uh, asking the question in my community, why, why do we feel so disconnected from each other, but also from people that aren't part of the congregation and things like that? And came across Strong Towns, uh, this organization that was writing about the effects of our modern development pattern and the way in which things have become so spaced out and so resource, uh, uh, they require so many resources in order to keep them up that as a consequence, we are becoming more and more impoverished. Uh, there are unsustainable long-term liabilities that our municipalities are facing, which is why we can't even have you know many nice things. Our, our new structures are built out in the edges of town. Everyone has to get in a vehicle to get to them versus in or, you know, within a neighborhood having, you know, a small park, a modest park, a place that people can make, make their own. And so what Strong Towns is, is about is uh, trying to find ways uh, to reverse the pattern of decline that we're facing within our communities, uh, to return to a pattern of development that builds wealth, uh, that provides opportunity for citizens and allows for resilient growth. And so if we can undo and return to more of a traditional development pattern where neighborhoods are more uh, somewhat more compact only because that is the best way to conserve resources, the best way to use resources well, 
um, what you begin to see is that this will actually simultaneously generate greater opportunity for community and and mutual betterment. And so it has a huge application. We're strong towns, but people in big cities are like, oh, this totally applies here. You're talking about parking, you're talking parking reform, you're talking about, you know, building better neighborhoods. And at the same time, small towns are are pleading with us. Can you come and talk within our community? Can you explain how these things work? Because we know that our places are in decline, but we know that it that can be reversed. We can change a course uh, on this front. Um, and so that that's a big part of what I, I do now. I, I shifted gears out of uh, pastoral ministry into working uh, just to connect members with each other and connect uh, people's stories as a way of encouraging, encouraging people to take uh, just what little steps they can in their community to, to make stronger places. I love that so much. Um, so we, we live near a little community of 175 people. I talk about it a lot on the podcast that it has had a, a very steep decline over the decades. And so one of the things I'm just so passionate about is how do we bring life back into that? So you're speaking my language. Um, it's so important. And it's surprisingly to me, one of the most old fashioned things I think I've done, one of the most old fashioned skills I've developed is learning how to get into a community and dig in. So I, I think it's super important. Can you speak a little bit? One of the things I'm always fascinated about is how did we get to this place in our modern world that here, you know, why are we here in in this spot now? And can you kind of walk us through the progression of how we went to being more community centric, um, people focused to modern day in terms of like our cities and our towns and, and all that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the traditional development pattern, uh, which you would, if you look at cities around the world over uh, over several millennia. So thousands of years of trial and error, uh, cities began to take fairly predictable forms. And so the style might differ, the, you know, where the, the cultural place of prominence might be, that, that might have differed, but you would see very, uh, tended to be within the, the core, you would have a tight core with fairly fine blocks, uh, fairly narrow parcels of property. And what that allowed is that it allowed the community to store its wealth there, to conserve the wealth of the community by building structures that would immediately have customers, uh, that would immediately have the ability to be expanded upon uh, with some ease. And so if you realize, oh, we can actually turn this into two stories or even into a three-story building, one of the things that you would see is that quite quickly, a community would move from just a, a collection of shacks to the next person improving their their structure, improving their building as as opportunity came about. And critically, that first round of development had to be very modest, uh, very discreet. Uh, it's sort of like, I think your story is starting out with the homestead where you didn't immediately build it all at once to a finished state. Instead, everything was done in an incremental way. And that's how communities were developed. And what you would see is the core would begin to develop additional services. Uh, you would suddenly have water uh, and sewer being dealt with. There would be a fire brigade that served just that core. And the cheap land was always at the outside. And the cheaper properties didn't have the services. You know, farmers know exactly what that's like, where you have to come up with it on your own. But the result was that that was the place where new opportunity could emerge, where you could make a life for yourself, buy something cheap, improve it. After the World War II ended, uh, the economists in the White House had realized that we need to basically supercharge our economy or we're going to go back into a Great Depression. And the way that they decided to take the skills that soldiers had uh, to take the factories that had been producing armaments and tanks and to be able to take all of this new uh, profound like energy that was there because the war had been won. And the question is, what do we do? They said, let's create suburban neighborhoods. Let's build them all at, out all at once into a finished state. And so you began to see this where 
Previously, it would be an incremental uh, broadening up and thickening out as as the communities began. But all of a sudden, you would see whole entire swaths of areas uh, being devoted to just single detached homes. And it was a great promise. And it was it was a gr- very successful program. The trouble was, like Ritalin or statins for your cholesterol, once you're on it, it's so hard to get off. And that supercharged growth machine actually has impacted so much of the way in which our capitalist uh, society continues to uh, pursue growth at all costs, even to the point where in the traditional development pattern, you would you would accept growth and expect it if, if it was coming along, but you would not take core steps that would sacrifice stability. Mm-hmm. Farmers know this. Business owners know this. You don't, you know, you don't eat what you're going to sow. Uh, you need to be setting aside that the things that you need for next year, you need to be setting that aside. And what we have instead said is if we can continue each year to add new housing developments, the developer comes along and they give a check to the city. We can take that money and go and pay off our other liabilities that we have because we have pipes that are breaking, which we sometimes are repairing. But that's what a Ponzi scheme is. You take in enough new money to pay out old requirements or old payouts. And so Chuck Marone of Strongtown says, you know, we've gotten into a growth Ponzi scheme and the only way to get out of it is to stop, is to just stop and say, you know, let's not build more roads. Uh, you know, we have a massive road system. Uh, we don't need more highway lanes. We, what we need to do is use those resources much more effectively and begin to find ways to thicken existing neighborhoods. Uh, even rural communities have this where you would typically have seen a cluster of, of a lot of small little storefronts and the thing that they benefited from and shared together was access to the right of way. So if there was a train station right around, you would see this little cluster. And instead, what we've done is we've allowed our lots to sprawl, to become so significantly longer or wider that you have to walk a considerable distance if you were to go on foot from one to the next. And and to the person in their truck, they say, well, you know, if I have to go into town and I have to stop six times and, you know, move my vehicle, that that's common. That's what I grew up doing uh, with my dad when he would go around to pay bills. Uh, but the consequence of that is that you might not be staying in that community. You might have less reason to stay in and stay, stick around a little longer. Uh, the coffee shop is not going to be on your list of to-dos because it feels wasteful to do it. But if you run into somebody as you're navigating through the community, that's that's what my family even had growing up. Uh, Coldale, Alberta was the place where our butcher was, our, our post office, our grocery store. And then it just became a little bit easier. And we actually sacrificed for ourselves a certain value of being able to get everything all at once in our cart uh, by going into the big city. And as a result, you begin to lose neighborhood connection. You begin to lose those things. Uh, the money that we spent there didn't support the local accountants, didn't uh, you know keep the new newspaper in, in check. Uh, instead, it was all money that was, was being lost, um, sort of evaporating from our community uh, and going out from there. And so that has had a huge, profound impact. Maybe one other piece, especially for rural areas, is the loss of middle uh, middle factors. So the person that would sell you the seed now, larger operations, they buy directly from the source. Uh, there's so many things like that, but there are ways out of that. Uh, I notice what you've done in in your community. Start start a place that's worth gathering in yeah. uh, a, a soda fountain place. Like just make a place that's lovable and begin to see uh, perhaps an encouragement of of someone else says, "I'm going to start a bakery next door." Or what if I did like an arts and crafts sort of thing uh, nearby? What is the service that we can have? If there's a small parcel of land and with an existing structure on it, could it be that a barber is, is encouraged, hey, 
once a month, if you show up in this town, we will make sure there's enough customers yeah. and, and make it a customer, you know, make it a, a friendly thing, make it a, almost a festival. Like, you know, the vet is coming into town or the baker is coming into town or, or maybe not the baker. You want one of those every day. But um, we had a fish truck that would show up once a week uh, with fish and people would make a point to go out to it. Those things, we can actually bring them back provided we build up deep connections with our neighbors. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And that's exactly what I, we've seen happen in our little town with the soda fountain. And then um, our friends opened a mercantile across the street last year. And it was funny, just a couple days ago, I went to the soda fountain and I hung out for a while and did some dishes and talked to everybody. And then I walked across the street to the mercantile and they were doing a coffee tasting. So I tasted some coffee and said hi to a bunch of people. And then I went over to the post office and talked to my friend at the post office. And I just felt so full, even though I don't live in the town, I live nine miles away. I just felt so full. Like, I saw friends and the neighbors. It was like Sesame Street, you know, walking down, talking to everybody. And it was, it was like, this is special. And I, I wish more people could experience this. Well, and this is where even, you know, with strong towns, what we always say is, you know, don't think about your city, think about your neighborhood. Now, sometimes you do have to, you know, scale up to the city, but so much has to happen first at the, at the level of your house, then at the level of your block, and then in the level or the scale of your neighborhood. And one of the things to do is if you're getting frustrated, even your neighborhood's not quite right, then figure out is there a way I can make my block better. Now for you that, you know, we had a block, uh, but it was a full section. And so, you know, we would, that was our block where we sold chocolates. That's the block where I, you know, would go and cut lawns for neighbors and stuff. Yeah. But what's interesting about what you said there is you were nine miles away from your, your town, but it's your town. Yeah. And that is one of the things that when you look at a, many of our suburban neighborhoods in the way in which they are deliberately designed in single use format so that only houses are present and there's a cluster of anonymous commercial sort of over at some distance, that's not their town. And people, you ask people like, where are you from? They're like, oh, I'm from Pasadena. But they don't say like, I'm from old Pasadena. Well, old Pasadena actually is really lovely, but there's other parts where it becomes so anonymous that you actually take no sense of pride of ownership. Are there places that you routinely go back to, not just for product, but for people? And I think that that's another yes. core thing, a, a health test for your community. If, if there was a disaster, would you be able to find your neighbors and know them when you got together uh, in, in the, the local place? Like if there was a fire and you had to gather, would you immediately know that most of them? Um, if you've newly moved into an area, do you know where people gather? Uh, not just for a product, you know, that's uh, grocery stores are, are come and go. Mm -hmm. Uh, but these places, and like you said, next thing you know, you're doing something you didn't plan on doing that day. Uh, and there's a beauty to that that um, whimsical sort of uh, yes. um, capacity to just experience things that you you otherwise wouldn't have. And, and it adds that richness and that fullness to life. I think that's why farm life, I mean, again, I know this isn't only about farm life, but like farm life is wonderful because you never know what you're going to do on, a, on any right. given day. Yep. And there's actually a dynamism to that. There's routine chores. There's things that you have to get done. Then throughout the day, you're, you're tackling different things, but hopefully also you're, ta you're doing it together with other people. Uh, growing up on a dairy farm, we had a whole host of different people that my dad would have to call in at different times. If something went wrong with the electrical stuff, he would do as much as he could and then hire, you know, bringing in somebody to do that. And <laughs> there was one older man, uh, he was a smoker. And he was the only person I ever saw my mom allow smoke in our house because Mr. Middlecope always showed up yeah. and he would always have a coffee with my dad and then have a, you know, have a cigarette right in the house. And I remember thinking like, what is going on? Because my mom hated it, but that's what you do with neighbors. That's what you do with those that are, are nearest to you, people that you know and, and value and, and appreciate around you.
Yeah. And that's, it's, it's so special. And I, I mean, I'm people have say, well, that's cool, but I'm an introvert. And I'm like, well, I'm an introvert too. Like I, I like being alone and I, I like, I like space, but I think as we become more invested in the town, just kind of like you said, those unexpected um, moments to be able to rub shoulders with people that I wouldn't have scheduled a meeting with otherwise. I wouldn't have a reason to get to know them. I wouldn't have a reason to to sit down and, and eat a, a meal with them, but it's been really enriching. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's good. Yeah. And maybe on that point, um, I don't know if you, any of your readers are familiar with Grace Olmstead, uh, but she has a wonderful quote where she yes. says, uh, to choose rootedness in a place uh, we have to seek out larger goals than financial fulfillment. Uh, then reaching that next rung on the social or economic ladder, we have to consider whether the perfect career or paycheck will offer us the fulfillment or happiness that we lack, or whether the cost of transience is in fact too high. Uh, I found I find that to be really powerful. Like, what is the cost of transience? Because the suburban style of development, in contrast with the traditional development pattern, is sort of like anywhere USA. And, you know, everything should eventually begins to look very beige, very bland, very distinct or indistinct, I should say, uh, in contrast with places that are are loved, places that have character, uh, places like a, a soda fountain, which critically is not just the space that you're running, but you've, I saw that there's trees that are being kept up. Uh, there's yeah. space for people to just sit outside, sit and gather. Uh, there's, there's different things like that. And yet, contrasting that even with the rest area that the I'm assuming the state has installed uh, nearby mm-hmm. your yes. community. And yet that place actually displays a, a, a very high degree of transience. It looks much like every other place, even though it could have actually just been integrated more into the town or have a clear, you know, yellow brick pathway or whatever it looks like to take people to places of great value. But instead we, we allow ourselves by design to actually cut off some of those options where People are just unaware. Oh, this town has more to offer than than meets the eye, and and I, I love that as as a way of trying to think. Even in a rural or suburban or urban area, there should be those gems, those great places that we're we're drawn to, where we know that we'll find people. Yeah, and that sense of place. Wendell Berry talks a lot about the sense of place, and I think that's mm-hmm. so crucial because, like you said, and I'd like to I'd like to talk about that too because I've I've been wondering or I've wondered for a while what caused this desire for everything to look the same. I know franchising and I know corporations are, are at play, but like, I mean, like you said, anywhere you go in the U S the strip malls look the same. The restaurants are the same. It's, it's harder to find a town. Like you can find some cool downtowns, but it feels like everything is becoming so homogenized. What's the force behind that? Is there a force behind that or is it just by accident? Um, I think that there is a way in which our regulatory system. So zoning bylaws, other types of development standards, when so many things are done by the book, and that book is very detailed and very onerous, the challenge is, is that there is a high bar of entry and a very low likelihood of success if you're not already practiced in this. And so the, we see this with housing, for example, where people that traditionally would be adding on to their own, uh, you know, if they owned a small parcel, they would build a very modest starter home. They might actually build a second structure in the back. And it's going to be a little bit odd because they're using recycled materials or, you know, uh, Brother Bob got, you know, an extra pallet of, of, of shingles. And so half the shingles don't match, but it actually adds to the charm. And in contrast, the suburban experiment is all about like building everything all at once to a finished state. And you go into the bank and you say, I'd like to build a house that's going to be constructed in three phases, or I'd like to build out my, my neighborhood restaurant um, but I'm only going to do the front section and then we're going to see what if we do a banquet hall in the back or if it becomes a community gathering space, whatever that looks like. And the bank says, no, we're not interested. We can go to the franchisees 
we can go to the national chains and they come in with the template. We accept the template and we go with it. This is why you get, you know, everything looking the same. McDonald's has the exact same template and the city just, they, they basically say, well, we can't say no uh, because they followed every single rule in the book, even though deep down, it's like, do we need another one of these? Uh, do we need another one of these, especially when it comes at, at great cost? And then the other key part of it is, um, so in my city, we have a locals, it's called locals coffee shop, great coffee shop. And it has a, an office upstairs in the old uh, village area. And there, that parcel of land, I compared the amount of property tax that they pay per acre on a per acre basis to make it fair and compared it to the local McDonald's, which occupies a very prominent place. It's got frontage all on both sides. They would have come in with their template and the city made them modify it a little bit. Um, but the McDonald's pays one seventh the amount of property tax per acre because of the way in which we assess oh their goodness. property. Their property, much of the land is used for moving and storing cars rather than serving people. And as a result, they don't generate very much revenue from that land. And so they, they don't get assessed very high on it. They take up more land and they contribute less in property taxes uh, per acre than, than the local coffee shop. And so there's a systemic system uh, that is actually uh, devalued uh, land that is used w within an, a car-centric um, approach, which is, I mean, it's okay to have cars. We use them for so many different types of things but drive-throughs and all of the conveniences. I always say, how convenient is it if one if we're only getting one-seventh of the amount of revenue to provide essential services in our community? And so we have a, a banking system that prefers things when it's orderly. Uh, strong towns would say orderly, but dumb, in contrast yeah. with things that are chaotic, you know, but smart, kind of messy. Um, cities love to have design standards, but they actually end up ruling out more of the interesting things than keeping out any of the, the bad things, even signed bylaws. You know, we could probably do with a bit of whimsy. We could probably do with yeah. a bit of irregularity. Um, we should see, you know, small parcels of land being turned into, you know, a little uh, look how hard it's been to, to place tiny homes, for example, or to be able to do like roadside diners and things like that. And, and you have to go through all of these regulations. And, and we're not anti-regulation if safety is involved, but we regulate so many things and do it so onerously that the bar of entry is so high. And so coming back to housing, to get the approval to say, build a duplex, you probably need to have done that already. And we aren't providing that first rung of the ladder. We've, we've chopped off the first several rungs of the ladder with our zoning bylaws, all of our requirements and the consequences that you have to be at a certain scale in order to build in various communities. And many of the people that are best able to do that are just the ones that come in with a copy and paste mentality and, and create those places. And so that's where our oldest neighborhoods are some of the coolest places. And, and that's no accident. It's actually not because they were so clever back then, but it's because when you get messy, when you get chaotic, when you get this kind of confused situation of like, you know, why, why did somebody build that? You Like those head scratcher places actually add character, add value, add interest to a place and um, over the long run become something lovable. Yeah. And I think about the towns. Um, I come from a quirky kind of, art loving town and the other ones I've been in, the ones that seem to be the popular tourist attractions are the ones that are quirky that have fun downtowns and interesting architecture. We like to go visit those, but then it seems like they kind of get lost in translation. And I can attest to the, 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 the cost, the high cost to entry, the barrier to entry. We've dealt with so much regulatory stuff in the rest, trying to get the restaurant up and running right now. We're trying to start a charter school. And it's interesting. It's exactly what you said, even in that realm, 
we're trying to do a very grassroots charter school that fits our community and our community's needs. And it's hard. It is so hard because the regular, the regulations are built for massive organizations and there's no room for a little Mm -hmm. grassroots parent led school. Um, so yeah, I can, I can relate to the difficulty in that. Yeah. And even something as like a building code that has has certainly saved lives, you know, ensuring that people aren't buying properties that are actually going to collapse very soon after purchase, you know, that people aren't being stuck with bad investments. Those, Those are all valuable goals to have for a building code. Um, but what Chuck Marone talks about in his Strong Towns book is uh, with older older structures, sometimes the biggest impediment is getting the facility up to code in order to run a commercial business or a restaurant or things like that. And and what Chuck says is, you know, we need, uh, I, I, if it's at the state level or the regional level or at the local level, uh, to be able to say you get one year so that you move and you start your business. You first have to make sure that, you know, the staircases don't end abruptly or that, you know, there is, it's not a death trap. Provided it's not a death trap, yes. um, which in most places we would as- agree that that's an important goal. Um, provided then there ought to instead be, rather than everything having to be built all at once to a finished state to start a business, it should be, what if it's one year later? So you have one year to bring it up to code. One year in which you can work towards with the new revenue coming in, making it ADA compliant. Uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act is is crucial uh, to, you know, bettering communities. And yet one of the problems is that the implementation of it can feel so costly up front that many won't even take the step of actually improving a facility over a while because they just don't, they don't have the revenue right up front. The, the architect comes along and says, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, this building, you know, it's, it's old. And so there's just so much that you need to do. And you're like, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to invest in this. I want to like put the work into it, but I can't, you know, up front, install the elevator. But within a year, I probably could. If I know, you know, based on my growth plan or my my business plan, if I, and yet we don't allow that. And that's because it's like, well, what if they, what if it took more than a year? You say, then have the building inspector show up and make it very clear this needs to happen. But instead we front loaded that. So everything is always brought right up to the front so that the moment that a building or a structure has been changed, or, or constructed for the first time, that is supposed to be its finished state. And we know life doesn't work that way. Families don't work that way. Uh, kids, you know, schools don't run that way. And yet we we kind of have this this perception that um, if we know what the end goal is, let's have that at the, at the beginning. And that's what a suburban, you know, you walk into a sales office in a suburban uh, development, they will show you exactly what that neighborhood is going to look like. And that might touch on uh, a little bit why, uh, going back to the earlier question, why people... Um, for a long time, we began to see things looking a lot the same, in part because when it's brand new, it looks very compelling. And so in the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, these neighborhoods looked fantastic. But you go through them now and you realize, oh, they're not, they're not providing for the basic upkeep that's required. The property tax base is too low to actually provide the necessary services. Neighbors that had invested in those places have now begun to leave them and other people have moved in, but they're at a disadvantage because they haven't reaped the wealth generation that came from having a starter home of, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, getting it up to two hundred thousand or four hundred, or in Vancouver, one point two million. Yeah. And people walk oh. away with all that wealth, and now a new generation comes in, and they're met with a neighborhood that has big bills and is really challenging to retrofit to improve as you go along. And so the quest is, you know, do do you go out to the commu- to the neighborhood? 
or out to the rural areas and and take care of everything yourself. And actually, there's a, a bit of that resilience that we need our sub- suburbs to learn from rural communities. Like, what does it look like to have a more localized uh, sewer system, storms, stormwater? Uh, you know, we had stormwater uh, management on our farm. It was just a big dugout uh, at the back of the yard. So we had our freshwater, you know, a pond, and then we had sort of a dugout slough, uh, and we had drained everything into that area. We could accommodate, gal- I mean, millions of gallons of water, um, and yet cities struggle because they're trying to keep everything running through pipes. Uh, they're not using the, the older styles of, of flood management pr- uh, techniques and, and different tactics to, to ensure that you weren't washing away your most valuable resources, uh, which that may come. I mean, we may see increasing storms and other challenges that uh, even put more strain on, on our critical infrastructure. Hey, friends, I'm just interrupting this episode for a second to give a shout out to our other sponsor, the Modern Homesteading Conference. So this is really exciting because up until now, all the big homestead conferences and events mostly happened on the East Coast. And that meant if you live out West, then you're either driving a long ways, you're flying a long ways. And that just makes things a lot more complicated when you have animals and gardens and all the things as we do. However, that is changing this year. So the Modern Homesteading Conference is a brand new event. It's going to be held in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. It's live and it's two full days filled with your favorite homesteading experts like Joel Salatin, Homesteading Family, Melissa K. Norris, Anna of All Trades, Farmstead Meatsmith, and many, many more. I was looking at their website and it's a great lineup of speakers. So not only are you going to get all that valuable knowledge and the skill sets that are going to help you be more self-sufficient no matter where you live, but you also get the bonus opportunity to enjoy a concert by Grammy award-winning farmer and filmmaker Rory Feek. You know, I love Rory. He's been on my podcast. He visits our homestead every year. He's a dear friend. So that's a big treat. All the homestead knowledge by day and a concert with Rory at night. So classes will include Raising a family milk cow, on-site live butchering and curing demos. Like that's pretty darn cool. Homestead income classes, four-season gardening, cheese making, homeschooling, sustainable agriculture, and tons more. So don't miss out. Tickets are on sale now. Head on over to their website to see all that is included in the event and to save your ticket. The website is modernhomesteading.com. And now back to our episode. So I love this idea of thinking of out of the box ways that we can make our current situations work. Because I know a lot of people listening to this live in the suburbs. Um, they live in urban areas. They live in cities and towns. They're not necessarily living out on the prairie like I am. So can you share some of the, the action items that someone could start thinking about if they wanted to adopt this idea of, of stronger towns and building up community and maybe kind of shifting the mindset away from car everything to more people centric. Mm -hmm. A big part of it starts with knowing your neighbors and doing so in an intentional way. And so there is uh, so much to be said about, you know, depending on your personality type and and what you feel comfortable with, either finding a buddy that can be the spokesperson, the person that helps to organize a a neighborhood barbecue or a neighborhood get together. Um, Just starting with something very simple. I I wrote an article for the Strong Town site that uh, was titled, I just hit print. And we hosted a, a neighborhood gathering, and it was the first one in 45 years in our suburban neighborhood, uh, because people said, "I moved here 45 years ago, and uh, you know this is the first time that we've ever done this." 
And, and it was distinct because there had been, you know, people would have friends over, people would have others, you know, gather together in their place. Um, but it was done with the intention of, of actually just bringing the community together. And all that we did was we printed off a couple of different flyers and my son and I walked around in the heat. Uh, it was over a hundred degrees uh, that day. And we just knocked on doors and, and handed out the flyers and we had over 45 people show up. And what I loved about mm-hmm. it was the recognition that this is a place that people care about. This is a place that people love and they love it for lots of different reasons. And so the conversations really flowed. Um, my wife and I provided the hamburgers and the and the buns. And then we just said, if you want to bring a side or if you want to bring a drink, uh, people brought their you know venison jerky and other people brought stuff that they were proud of. Another thing that you could definitely work towards is recapturing if your place has a front yard, some sort of front space that is semi-private, um, that or pardon me, I would even say that a front yard is, is semi-public, uh, that that's actually a great gathering place. I think it's a book called The Turquoise Table uh, is a really great inspiration for me because we moved our, pink, our picnic table out to the front yard. And as a result, just spending time out there, we started to meet so many more of our neighbors, uh, people that we hadn't run into in quite a while. Uh, being out in the front actually signals a sense of uh, an acceptance of what life within the neighborhood actually entails because our, our backyards are often our retreat. But we often default to that retreat mode rather than being in a place where we are inviting the participation of of others around us. Uh, we were just, my son and I were playing basketball and all of a sudden our neighbor from three doors down, she's she's um, an elder within the community now and she she comes walking over and she has a giant sombrero and she's like, would you like this? And I was like, okay, I never would have thought that of myself as a sombrero wearing person, but I was like, I would love your gift. And so it was interesting because had I been in my house or in my yard, that wouldn't have happened. And so if we think, how do we do that at the block level? That can be a really challenging thing for some people, in which case skip that step and go to step number two, which is meet within your neighborhood. That might be as simple as a Facebook post saying, I kind of want to just talk about what's happening in the community from a positive perspective. You know, let's talk about the things that we do like to see and what we would like to see more of. Uh, we want to see chickens or we want to see front yard gardens being permitted or we want to allow uh, for people to uh, start a small uh, home business with and, and lower the bar for that. And and doing that might be sometimes almost easier to first get your toe in the water that way of only willing people showing up and then sim- or subsequently going back taking it down a notch and saying at the block level, let's see if I can find willing people to engage with. Um, but a core part of it is from the Strong Towns approach, we, we say that there's a four-step process to public investment. And that first process, and this is for public leaders, but it actually should guide the way that we as residents also think about how we invest in our places. And it begins with humbly observing where our community struggles. And so uh, actually, uh, chiefly, this has to happen either on foot or on, on a bicycle, or in some way, a slow Sunday drive, uh, whatever that looks like, but actually slowing down, taking notice, where's the community struggling? Um, sometimes it might mean take someone out for a walk. If they're in a wheelchair, say, I'm going to I'm gonna push your wheelchair, and you're going to tell me what you see around you. Where, where do you see gaps? Where do you see obstacles? Or, or you know, mom, young moms and young dads with strollers are fantastic at this. All of a sudden realizing, oh, this place is not not suitable for me to feel safe and dignified and honored as I as I move through the community, especially with, within our quiet neighborhoods. Uh, these are places that we should all be able to thrive, and yet they're often not created in a way that really helps us to 
to thrive well. And so if you humbly observe where people are struggling, you will find that there is like a core, a number of core things. And what people often will do is try to figure out what's the biggest, you know, most grand thing to do. So let's write to the White House or let's get a state law in uh, to prevent uh, curb cuts from being too abrupt and, you know, make them more compliant. The reality is actually what we need to be doing is finding the first smallest thing that you can do to address that struggle. If people are struggling with heat, is there any way to provide shade? Plant a tree, but also install, you know, maybe a small uh, cooling area, whatever that looks like in your community. Uh, create small little gathering places. If there's benches, uh, we, we often do this. Our cities will stick benches and stick them facing the road. Well, that's not why I sit. That's not what I want to watch. That's not what I want to see unless yeah. it's an old classic car show. And so instead, do we have ways that there's proper seating for seniors, uh, for those that are are walking through the community and, and just taking note of what's happening? And then the third part is to actually go out and do that. And this is the challenge too. Communities really struggle with implementation. And part of it is because we haven't got used to just going out and doing things, trying things, practicing and or piloting things to see if it will actually take. Uh, will a street tree uh, survive in a particular location? A lot of times the city will bring in arborists, they will study it, they will do all this. And you're like, that tree is $15 plus another $100 to install it. Just try it. Try it. And, if you, and, and one of the key things too is accept when something fails that you've learned a lesson from that. And I think that's often uh, helps us to actually be more gracious with, with our community leaders because if they try something and it fails, it shouldn't just be like, oh, can you believe it? You should actually be able to applaud them provided that the scale of the loss isn't so great. If they haven't invested big, if it's been a small bet and they are willing to make many small bets on many small things, uh, that that would be a huge way uh, to help the community to improve. And so if it, if you find ways to know your neighbors and and just develop some common things that you can do with them, uh, develop ways to then understand your your na- uh, your broader neighborhood, uh, what are the needs that it's facing, and then try to interface and just find a few people, a few key people around you that can help you to to be encouraged and and to take note. Oh, these are areas that we together could actually help uh, to improve. For example, our our parks. Uh, Chuck says that you know a, a lifeless park is a sign of a lifeless neighborhood. And and I actually experienced this where we lived. It was a neighborhood full of townhouses and the obligatory sort of like small neighborhood park. But it was like a nothing park. It had gravel. Uh, they didn't even want to pay for wood chips because the gravel could just be, you know, didn't have to be replaced as frequently. Uh, so I went into the neighborhood park with a giant shovel. And I just started making a giant mound of all of the gravel in that thing, uh, in, the, in the pit where the, the playground structure was. And immediately the kids began flocking to that place. And I had essentially broken some sort of social construct, which was, you know, I don't have ownership, therefore I can't amend the site. I can't change it in its okay. physical form. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not doing that. I, I'm going to change it because I have a two-year-old or a, and a three-year-old uh, that is interested in using this space in new and novel ways. Now, I didn't break anything, but I definitely changed everything. And, and for a, a month later, that mound remained and kids would climb up it, and yeah, they got filthy. Uh, but that created joy. It created delight. And it was actually creating some value as well because caregivers were were able to stay longer, uh, spend more time visiting with the people that were there because we actually face this challenge that a lot of our neighborhoods uh, struggle with a boredom problem. Uh, a boredom problem is something that should be fixed yes. with small things, not big things. Lots of times places are like, our kids just don't have places. So they're going to uh, get a state grant to build a, a children's museum. 
But a children's museum is something you go to occasionally, once a year, depending on your budget, whatever that looks like. But it's not something that you can just modify. Um, you know, what actually changed in my neighborhood when I brought a shovel to the park was I took ownership of it. And that might be a bit of an encouragement as well uh, for folks out there. You know, if there's a, an area uh, that they continually, uh, that city staff nev- never get to or municipal staff, or there just is no staff to ever take uh, care of, of an area, uh, what if you installed a planter box? Uh, what if you, you know, plant a tree, uh, do it in the middle of the night if you need to, but, but plant a tree and see if it'll take water it every so often. Uh, kids, you know, I love what they teach kids in schools to take rocks and, and paint them uh, and then place them somewhere. That I think and that done a piece. whole bunch of times is a wonderful thing uh, for uh, community members to think like, what if we thought like children, how do we make this place a little bit more our own? Start with sidewalk chalk, start, start with, you know, a shovel in a, in a gravel sand pit. Uh, but then begin to build up and create more interesting places for for people as well. I love that so much. And that that ownership piece, I think, is what I see lacking the most in big towns and little towns is there's always yeah. that attitude. And I think partially just the systemic, um, you know, like you said, just there's so much bureaucracy and just this web of regulations and ordinances. Like, I think people are naturally discouraged, but there's that attitude of like, well, it's someone else's problem. Uh, or I hear a lot of, oh, I wish somebody would do something about fill in the blank. I'm like, no, no. That's you, darling. You get to do something about yep. it if you're feeling yep. that um, need. And like you said, it doesn't have to be big. So we don't all have the same resources, but it can be little. It can be a shovel at a park, uh, planting a tree. And I yep. think that's so empowering when we start to see it in that way. Mm-hmm. Or it, for example, yeah. one one thing that I would encourage, I mean, you have to be careful around roads and, and traffic safety and things like that. But there are there are some streets that are so wide that it takes a long time for especially a senior or a child, you know, mother with a child uh, to cross them uh, that they feel vulnerable. And sometimes we'll even skip that trip and be discouraged from actually going out because they're like, oh, I don't want to cross that road or I, I'm worried. Take, you know, a bunch of garbage cans. Uh, spray paint them, make them lovely, fill them with potting soil, put a couple of plants on the top of them and just narrow the roadway somewhat. One of the, I mean, street or state DOTs don't Mm. like that. But over time, actually in many places where that has been trialed, where that sort of tactical urbanism has been, was, has been undertaken, it has led uh, to permanent changes, uh, to curb extensions that basically do that work of, of making the street just a little bit narrower and as a consequence, making it more dignified for someone to cross as well as actually improving sight lines because the pedestrian comes out a little ways. They are still protected somewhat by these, these, these big barrels that people are going to think twice about running in, running into or running over. Um, and as a result, you create and add a little bit of beauty, add a little bit of whimsy, stick a giant smiley face on it. Uh, whatever it takes to basically shake things up and create a, a new pattern of, of seeing the community uh, in that way. And I love that. What would you say is the, the the common denominator or the biggest common denominator you see in towns that are making good changes and are on a good path right now, whether they're big or small? The biggest common denominator is that they're not looking elsewhere. We are asked at Strong Towns all the time, can you tell us what communities are doing this? Uh, can you tell? Can you give us examples? You know, can you please show us uh, the community that has actually successfully done this? And the reality is, is that it needs to begin with places saying, like, what are we dealing with? What are we faced with? Like, what, what in a, what in a day uh, can we think of as solutions to some of the problems? And and what can we try? Uh, what can we practice? Um, the challenge is that we, because what it actually does is that fosters an ecosystem of not looking elsewhere to find examples, 
or basically not looking elsewhere to find permission to do something, but instead saying at a, at a local level, let's let's see what we can change here. And so, for example, on parking requirements, we've been tracking uh, the number of places through the Parking Reform Network uh, that are actually finally getting rid of, of strict parking requirements, providing business owners and, and residential property owners uh, with, a, with a choice of how many parking spaces that they want to provide for their customers or for their residents. What is interesting about it is that for a long time, no one was willing to do it because no one had done it. Oh, very few people or very few places had done it. Now what places are realizing is we have not benefited from these strict requirements. Our downtowns, the most of the places that are, are removing parking minimums are in the downtown core areas, which ironically would be the very place that you would expect a parking minimum to do the most benefit. Uh, a mandate that you provide a certain number of stalls per right. bowling lane or certain number of stalls uh, with restaurants. This is a huge problem that you know, even in r- fairly rural areas, they have to provide a certain number of parking spaces and make them available uh, for the number of tables that they have. And so a commun- a space will be able to fit more people and, mm-hmm. and in a booming time, they're, they're ready to serve more customers, but they can't because of parking requirements. And when a city says like, what do we actually need here? What, what is the problem that we are trying to solve? I think that's when community members become more engaged because you're asking them to help you solve problems that they are actually able to address you know, what, what could make this park better? What, you know, if we have a hundred dollars, let's, let's first put in a hundred and tomorrow let's put in another hundred. And then, then let's see if there's a benefactor, uh, somebody in the community that will, will step up and fund, you know, a waiting pool or whatever that looks like. But instead what our communities have done is they become um, hooked on seeking out examples from other places as if they can just copy and paste it into their own. And the translation work never works a hundred percent. And as a result, there's always gaps. There's always those difficulties. And it takes a lot longer than just beginning and trying things for yourself. And the other thing is that a lot of places will wait until there's grant money available. They want to get the outside funding from higher levels of government. But those systems are so structured to delay things, to slow things down, and to make things rigid that it really harms the ability of a community to iterate. Uh, to do the next thing that comes to mind to say, oh, that worked well, let's try that again, but different, uh, bigger or better or or learn from failures. And and that can be a critical thing. Uh, a lot of our grant pro- programs are designed to be failure proof, uh, even though they result in dramatic failures, but they don't allow small mistakes to be made, small errors uh, that don't have big consequences, but instead are provide learning opportunities. And so uh, I think that that's a key part of it, trying to say like, you know, what can we do right here where we live? And sometimes that can be a community member uh, just saying, I, I have some ideas and getting a bunch of the residents together. Uh, this happened in, in Baltimore. So a big, big city uh, where they said, we need um, benches at our bus stops. And so a group just started putting out benches at the bus stops. And immediately the, the Ministry of Transport was coming in and they were removing them. Until they began to take pictures of them, make a make a case like this is why this is already a good thing, a better thing. And if the city is going to keep removing them, we're going to make it clear that they are actually harming what is best for the community. And I think that that is a, a pattern that we can begin to say is let's work together to solve those those local needs. Um, and and the reality is like almost anyone can do it. You can ask a child like what do you, what would make this park better? No. They might want a water park in there, and that's not feasible, but there might be something sure. else that you could ask them uh, for and, and to do that. Another key part of it is just to get out walking in the neighborhood, have local leaders and say, why don't you come walk with eight of us or five of us? 
uh, and let's talk about what we see. Let's slow down. I uh, give thought to uh, the first thing, you know, what's the first thing that you see in this place that's missing? Or what's the first thing that we could uh, remove from this place? Um, you know, is, is what's the core issue that uh, we, we need to grapple with here uh, on speed? Uh, for example, speed is, is a real problem in a lot of our, our rural and uh, semi-rural areas uh, that cars are tr- simply traveling too fast uh, for people to feel safe out of a vehicle. Well, then begin to tr- create paths or trails that are on, on the inside. On the, on the neighborhood street side, uh, rather than on, on the main um, state highways or things like that. Uh, but there's so many more things that we can do if we just slow down, look around, and and take things, uh, take time to plant trees or paint crosswalks or uh, help people with benches uh, for them to use. So good. Um, I think that that seeking of permission is such a human tendency. I see it in homesteading. I see it in in entrepreneurs. We and I do it myself. You know, we're always looking for that authority figure to tell you it's okay. You can do this. Someone else has done it. Here's the formula. And so much of the good stuff in life, there is no formula. You get to be creative, and the really exciting stuff happens when we think outside that box. Just like you're saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Well, I know we're coming up on time, and I know you have a busy schedule. Um, I guess as as we wrap up here, is there any? Anything else you'd want to say or any last bits of advice to the audience who are looking to create their own strong towns? The core message that I would leave as a takeaway is just to love your place and be assured that it will love you back. Um, that there can be that, that recognition that your place with all of its flaws uh, is, is beauty and has beauty within it uh, that is, is there to be on earth, there, is there to be um, brought into further uh, uh, flourishing. Uh, one of the goals that we have is, uh, as Strong Towns, is to create neighborhoods and places uh, where there is prosperity for everyone. And that's prosperity in the broadest sense, um, and the fullness of life, the, the fullness of you know community together uh, and, and sharing in, in things that, that allow everyone to have an opportunity, everyone to have an opportunity to um, start a business if they want, or to find a, a passionate uh, project that they can really get involved in street art or whatever that looks like, uh, different types of gardening, different types of, you know, beekeeping, whatever that is. And then another part or another uh, aspect of loving that place is to love its messiness, uh, to love, you know, those, those bits of chaos, uh, allowing a, a lawn to be uh, become a, a field of clover rather than having to be perfectly manicured uh, in, in every set, setting uh, is is one of the ways that you can do that. Trying to find ways to just uh, allow kids to be kids uh, and make a mess every so often, and and create that, uh, use that same sort of creative energy uh, in order to begin to apply that more more generally within your neighborhood as well. Um, find ways to make your community known uh, for one thing or two things that are are unique about it. Uh, love the local places. Uh, find ways to uh, share in in the local prosperity uh, that comes when a local business owner succeeds, uh, even if it means that they give you a poor haircut when you could get a better one at this at the franchise. Uh, go and get the poor haircut until they their skills improve, or uh, support the the local high school student that is planning to start his own small business. Uh, there may even be some financial cost to it. It may not be quite as efficient, uh, but the benefits to you and to your community in the long run. Uh, will certainly be there uh, in spades. And so if you love your place, uh, it will certainly love you back. That is the best quote. I think I need that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> and that's been so true. I know for us in our little Chugwater community, like for many years, I had kind of a bad attitude about where we lived. And I thought, man, I don't know why we put down roots here. There's no one like me. There's no one my age. There's nothing for me here. And it was changing that story 
that really, I, I saw that that was so wrong. There was, there's so much here, but it was that ownership and that, you know, I, I'm going to choose to invest here. And when we did start to love Chugwater, it has absolutely yeah. let us back. So that um, is beautiful. Yeah, I love awesome. that. Um, uh, we could chat for hours, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I'm mindful of also of your time. So I know there's so much good stuff. I mean, I knew it was going to be good. It's been e- even better than I thought. So you are a wealth of information. Can you um, point people to the best places to connect with strong towns if if they're wanting to learn more and apply some of these principles into their area? Absolutely. Yeah, we have our main website is www.strongtowns.org, strongtowns.org. And that's our main site. That's where you'd get a fairly good introduction to what Strong Towns is about. If you're really interested in the concepts behind Strong Towns, I, I would definitely recommend that you check out the Strong Towns 101 course. Uh, Strong Towns 101, it's in our Strong Towns Academy. And it's a great way of being introduced to a new way of seeing the community around you as well as the opportunities that lie ahead. And then the last piece that I would have is we are continuing to add local conversations groups. So these are just casual discussion groups within, our goal is within a thousand uh, American and Canadian cities in in the next uh, three to four years. Uh, We're at about 400 at this point. And if you go to strongtowns.org slash local, you may find that there already is a Strongtowns local conversation where you live. And that would be a place where you will find folks that are happy to chat with you about these types of things. And perhaps even uh, bring in uh, your own interest if you've come uh, to Strong Towns through this this podcast uh, that Jill is running. Uh, that might be a place where you share some of the insights you've picked up there as well in terms of building uh, a stronger uh, community where you live. And so that's, yeah, again, strongtowns.org. Uh, that's uh, the core of our, our site and uh, the, where you'll find the most information to help you. Awesome. And we'll put all of that in the show notes. And I think Norm, you sent me an email with some really good links as well. So we'll drop all that. You guys to so go check out the show notes for all that good yeah. stuff. Um, thank you so much, Norm. This has been absolutely fantastic. And I am feeling even more inspired. And I know the audience will too. So I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you, Jill. This has been wonderful. Really appreciate being on.